Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Good evening, children of the night. Just the other night, I watched a film that I hadn't seen for quite some time, the 2004 horror film Saw. I recall seeing it in theaters and having my mind absolutely blown 
after having the story throw red herring after red herring to have the final twist at the ending. I would say that overall, the movie has aged well. There is a cinematic choice that the movie uses several times to really sell the panic of a trapped character by circling that character with the camera and using rough cuts to the action. At the time, that was used rather liberally in many horror films. I think that 13 Ghosts used it also, and I think that has now largely fallen away as a valid visual. It seems a bit ham-handed now. But Saw was made for a little over a million dollars, and according to IMDb, is now at a worldwide gross of $103 million, making it a tremendous return on investment for whoever financed it. I am less familiar with the sequels, but I'm told that some are worthy successors and others are not so well executed. I do know that Saw spawned a small subgenre of torture horror, which I recall being largely bad. The Hostel movies, for example, I remember hating, as the plot seemed to be a vehicle for showcasing torture porn. I do have to say that the one thing that I really appreciated about the story, and many others, are ones in which the villain has an understandable motive. Saw's sequel refines Jigsaw's motive that his victims are people who are squandering their lives and must make difficult and painful choices if they want to continue their lives. A noble lesson taught demonically. I always do appreciate a villain that I could understand myself playing that role if my life had taken just a slightly different fork along the way. Children of the Night, settle in. It's time for some fiction. Our first story of the night is from Eric S. Fomley, who is the editor of Martian Magazine, as well as the anthologies Time Shift, Drabble Dark, Kronos, and Sins and Other Worlds. As an author, his work has appeared in numerous venues, which can be found and read on his website, ericfomley.com. He is also on Twitter at Prince Grimdark. Links will be in the show notes. It is time for Eric S. Fomley's Sins of Blood, which originally appeared in Imperium Magazine, May 2017. Tendrils of smoke rose languidly from burning timbers, burdened with ash and the scent of charred flesh. I searched the remnants for life. There was none. I could feel my skin tingle from the sorcery in the air. The use of the dark magic sent a chill to my bones far more effectively than the snow around me. Evil coursed here, the sins of my quarry. I'd been a military man most of my life. I'd seen things, taken part in things that none but my sword brothers would understand. Enemies are detestable to each other and to the people who live in enemy territory when on a campaign. Even with what I'd seen and done for king and country, I knew they served a purpose. They sent a message to the enemy. The destruction of Dansbury was no such message. The witch burned simply for the sake of being evil. She gained pleasure by it, for it was evil she served. I searched for clues as to where she went, yet turned up little. 
On the road, I stumbled over the body of a young woman, burying her child in her arms. Even the most innocent had not escaped. Something caught my eye amidst the corpses, and I knelt to examine a blanket, mostly scorched by the flames. It was blue, with a small flower pattern neatly sewn onto one corner. Its familiarity pushed through my numbness. Less than a year prior, I'd purchased a similar blanket for my little boy. I wanted to grieve. I could feel the tears welling up inside as I remembered my son's sickness. He was the best thing I could have ever hoped for, and far more than I deserved. Just as his illness had started to progress, I received orders, which took me to the other side of the world. I wasn't there when he passed. That sort of guilt sticks with a man, worse than anything imaginable. I returned the blanket to the owner and pulled the furs tighter around my chest. In the distance, I saw smoke rising from a monastery further up the mountains. I headed in that direction, desperate to forget. The mountain road, if the dirt and broken cobbles could be called a road, looked out across the trees and fields that stretched for miles towards the horizon. My wife would have loved this place, despite the cold. She found beauty in the subtleties of life, where others would just feel cold. At least she used to. I came to where the monastery stood, surrounded by a few small buildings for storage and the livestock the humble priests traded with Dansbury. I saw no one. None of the chaos reflected in the village. I knew that had to do with the priests. Comfortable in their faith, they would not flee for their lives and desperation to live. They would remain and let the witch burn them where they worshipped. The smoke came from the main building of the monastery. I shifted uneasily before the looming structure. Even after what I'd seen in the village, after chasing the witch this long, I was nervous about what I'd see, whom I'd see. I took a deep breath, drew my sword, fitted my shield on my arm, and pushed hard on the large wooden door. My quarry stood in the middle of the monastery. I hardly recognized her as my wife. Fedra's dress was dirty, torn, and little more than rags. Her hair a tangled mess of mud and blood, unkempt from months on the move through the countryside. Blood ran from her nose and ears. She was using the magic too much. More would kill her. Blood magic always killed its user. Beloved, she said. She sounded pleased with herself. Not anymore. The woman I loved is dead. I spat on the floorboards and raised my sword and shield. Ah, she pretended to plead. A wicked smile played across her face. Whatever doubts I'd harbored about being able to face her were washed away by the evil that now resided within my once beautiful bride. When I returned to my village from the king's service, 
A survivor told me Fedra used sorcery in a vain attempt to save our son's life. Blood magic always taxes the user. It's wild and uncontrollable. A fool convinced they can control darkness ends up becoming part of it. After her son had died, her lust for the dark magic remained, and it poisoned her. Now my wife was gone. Only her vestige remained. She splayed her fingers and fire shot out towards me. I put my shield up and blocked the fireball and was knocked back. The heat seared my arm, metal-scorching flesh, and I screamed. But I wouldn't part with my only defense. Fedra shrieked and threw the force of her body into the next fireball, creating a much larger burst. I leapt out of the way and tumbled to the floor. Her magic took out the back wall of the monastery. A whirl of gray dust assailed the room as rocks and timber crashed to the floor, the roof creaking above. The building rocked and protested with a groan, bits of the wall coming down in the start of an avalanche of stone. I bolted through the opening and into the snow. The witch followed before the wall gave way, crumbling to ruin behind her. Blood dripped like tears from her eyes now as she staggered towards me. She splayed her fingers again. I barely got my shield up in time. Heat flashed around me, and again I was tossed to the ground. The flames continued, skin catching fire even behind my shield. I screamed and cursed myself for being so foolish when it suddenly stopped. Fedra collapsed. I flung my shield away and crawled towards her. By the time I reached Fedra, my gut wrenched with regret and sorrow. I raised my sword over my head. Her eyes flicked open. Beloved, she whispered. This time it truly was my wife. Her gaze was a chamber of horror and fear. It was as if she were suddenly aware of everything she'd done for the first time. Months of murder, lust for power, and a thousand sins committed were seared upon her eyes. What words could she express to me? She closed her eyes, and I knew they would never open. She would say nothing ever again. I let my sword drop and collapsed on my back. I'd spent months chasing her down, months trying to stop the atrocities she caused, but she killed herself with her darkness. As I lay on my back, burnt, I remembered when we were still young, what seemed like forever ago. I would give anything for that time back, to have been there when this all started. I had no family, no purpose, no reason to live. I waited for the sound of the crows.
That was Eric S. Fomley's Sins of Blood, as read by our own Drew Sedestini. Writer and designer, editor and inventor, brewer and narrator, Drew's been called a lot of things in his career, some nicer than others. By day, he spins stories with words and pictures as an advertising copywriter and creative director. But by the light of the moon, he can be found weaving tales for sound and screen and alchemizing bubbly brews with hops and barley. He lives in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada. Discover more about Drew at www.idrewthis.ca. Link will be in the show notes. Thank you, Drew. Our second story for the night is a classic. Amelia Ann Blandford Edwards, also known as Amelia B. Edwards, was an English novelist, journalist, traveler, and Egyptologist. Her most successful literary works included the ghost story The Phantom Coach, the novels Barbara's History, and Lord Brackenbury, and the Egyptian travelogue A Thousand Miles Up the Nile. In 1882, she co-founded the Egypt Exploration Fund. In January 1892, her partner and traveling companion Ellen Drew Brasher passed away, and Amelia died of influenza four months later. They were buried together in the churchyard of St. Mary the Virgin, Henbury. In September 2016, Historic England designated the grave as Grade Two listed, celebrating it as a landmark in English queer history. Children of the Night, lend me your ears for Amelia B. Edwards' The Phantom Coach. The circumstances I am about to relate to you have truth to recommend them. They happened to myself, and my recollection of them is as vivid as if they had taken place only yesterday. Twenty years, however, have gone by since that night. During those twenty years, I have told a story to but one other person. I tell it now with a reluctance which I find it difficult to overcome. All I entreat, meanwhile, is that you will abstain from forcing your own conclusions upon me. I want nothing explained away. I desire no arguments. My mind on the subject is quite made up, and having the testimony of my own senses to rely upon, I prefer to abide by it. Well, it was just twenty years ago, and within a day or two of the end of the grouse season. I had been out all day with my gun, and had had no sport to speak of. The wind was due east. The month of December, the place a bleak wide moor in the far north of England, and I had lost my way. It was not a pleasant place in which to lose one's way, with the first feathery flakes of a coming snowstorm just fluttering down upon the heather, and the leaden evening closing in all around. I shaded my eyes with my hand and stared anxiously into the gathering darkness, where the purple moorland melted into a range of low hills some ten or twelve miles distant. Not with the faintest smoke-wreath, not the tiniest cultivated patch or fence or sheep-track met my eyes in any direction. There was nothing for it but to walk on and take my chance of finding what shelter I could, by the way. So I shouldered my gun again and pushed wearily forward. 
for I had been on foot since an hour before daybreak and had eaten nothing since breakfast. Meanwhile, the snow began to come down with ominous steadiness, and the wind fell. After this, the cold became more intense, and the night came readily up. As for me, my prospects darkened with the darkening sky, and my heart grew heavy as I thought how my young wife was already watching for me through the window of our little inn parlor, and thought of all the suffering in store for her throughout this weary night. We had been married four months, and having spent our autumn in the highlands, were now lodging in a remote little village situated just on the verge of the great English moorlands. We were very much in love, and of course very happy. This morning, when we parted, she had implored me to return before dusk, and I had promised her that I would. What would I not have given to have kept my word? Even now, weary as I was, I felt that with a supper, an hour's rest, and a guide, I might still get back to her before midnight, if only guide and shelter could be found. And all this time the snow fell and the night thickened, I stopped and shouted every now and then, but my shout seemed only to make the silence deeper. Then a vague sense of uneasiness came upon me, and I began to remember stories of travelers who had walked on and on in the falling snow until, wearied out, they were fain to lie down and sleep their lives away. Would it be possible, I asked myself, to keep on thus through all the long dark night? Would there not come a time when my limbs might fail and my resolution give way? When I, too, must sleep the sleep of death? Death! I shuddered. How hard to die just now, when life lay all so bright before me. How hard for my darling, whose whole heart, but that thought was not to be born. To banish it, I shouted again, louder and longer, and then listened eagerly. Was my shout answered, or did I only fancy that I heard a far-off cry? I hallowed again, and again the echo followed. Then a wavering speck of light came suddenly out of the dark, shifting, disappearing, growing momentarily nearer and brighter. Running towards it at full speed, I found myself, to my great joy, face to face with an old man and a lantern. "'Thank God!' was the exclamation that burst involuntarily from my lips. Blinking and frowning, he lifted his lantern and peered into my face. "'What for?' he growled sulkily. Well, for you, I began to fear I should be lost in the snow. Eh, then folks do get cast away hereabouts for tide of time, and what's to hinder you from being cast away likewise if the Lord's so minded? If the Lord's so minded that you and I shall be lost together, friend, we must submit, I replied. But I don't mean to be lost without you. How far am I now from Dewalding? A guide twenty miles more or less. And the nearest village? The nearest village is Wyke, and that's twelve miles to the other side. Where do you live, then? Out yonder, he said, with a vague jerk of the lantern. You're going home, I presume? Maybe I am. Then I'm going with you. The old man shook his head and rubbed his nose reflectively with the handle of the lantern. It ain't no use, growled he. He won't let you in. Well, we'll see about that, I replied briskly. Who is he? The master. Who is the master? That's not to you, was the unceremonious reply. Well, well, you lead the way, and I'll engage that the master shall give me shelter and a supper tonight. Eh, you can try him, 
muttered my reluctant guide, and still shaking his head. He hobbled, gnome-like, away through the falling snow. A large mass loomed up presently out of the darkness, and a huge dog rushed out, barking furiously. "'Is that the house?' I asked. "'Aye, it's the house. Down by—' And he fumbled in the pocket for the key." I drew up close behind him, prepared to lose no chance of entrance, and saw in the little circle of light shed by the lantern that the door was heavily studded with iron nails, like the door of a prison. In another minute he had turned the key and I had pushed past him into the house. Once inside I looked round with curiosity, and found myself in a great raftered hall which served apparently a variety of uses. One end was piled to the roof with corn, like a barn. The other was stored with flour sacks, agricultural implements, casks, and all kinds of miscellaneous lumber, while from the beams overhead hung rows of hams, flitches, and bunches of dried herbs for winter use. In the center of the floor stood some huge object gauntly dressed in a dingy wrapping cloth and reaching halfway to the rafters. Lifting a corner of this cloth I saw, to my surprise, a telescope of very considerable size mounted on a rude movable platform with four small wheels. The tube was made of painted wood, bound round with bands of metal rudely fashioned. The speculum, as so far as I could estimate its size in the dim light, measured at least fifteen inches in diameter. While I was yet examining the instrument and asking myself whether it was not the work of some self-taught optician, a bell rang sharply. "'That's for you,' said my guide, with a malicious grin. "'Yonder's his room.' He pointed to a low, black door at the opposite side of the hall. I crossed over, rapped somewhat loudly, and went in without waiting for an invitation. A huge, white-haired old man rose from a table covered in books and papers and confronted me sternly. "'Who are you?' he said. "'How came you here? What do you want?' "'James Murray, barrister at law, on foot across the moor, meat, drink, and sleep.' He bent his bushy brows into a portentous frown. "'Mine is not a house of entertainment,' he said. "'Jacob, how dared you admit the stranger?' "'I didn't admit him,' grumbled the old man. "'He followed me over the mirror and shouldered his way in before me. I'm no match for six foot two. And pray, sir, by what right have you forced an entrance into my house? The same by which I should have clung to your boat if I were drowning, the right of self-preservation. Self-preservation? There's an inch of snow on the ground already, I replied, and it would be deep enough to cover my body before daybreak. He strode to the window, pulled aside a heavy black curtain, and looked out. It is true, he said. You can stay, if you choose, till morning. Jacob, serve the supper. With this, he waved me to a seat, resumed his own, and became at once absorbed in the studies from which I had disturbed him. I placed my gun in a corner, drew a chair to the hearth, and examined my quarters at leisure. Smaller and less incongruous in its arrangements in the hall, this room contained, nevertheless, much to awaken my curiosity. The floor was carpetless, the whitewashed walls were in parts scrawled over with strange diagrams, and in others covered with shelves crowded with philosophical instruments, the use of many of which were unknown to me. On one side of the fireplace stood a bookcase filled with dingy folios. 
on the other a small organ, fantastically decorated with painted carvings of medieval saints and devils. Through the half-open door of a cupboard at the further end of the room I saw a long array of geological specimens, surgical preparations, crucibles, retorts, and jars of chemicals, while on the mantel shelf beside me, amid a number of small objects, stood a model of the solar system, a small galvanic battery, and a microscope. Every chair had its burden, every corner was heaped high with books. The very floor was littered over with maps, casts, papers, tracings, and learned lumber of all conceivable kinds. I stared about me with an amazement increased by every fresh object upon which my eyes chanced to rest. So strange a room I had never seen, yet it seemed it stranger still to find such a room in a lone farmhouse amid these wild and solitary moors. Over and over again I looked from my host to his surroundings and from his surroundings back to my host, asking myself who and what he could be. His head was singularly fine, but it was more the head of a poet than that of a philosopher, broad in the temples, prominent over the eyes, and clothed with a rough profusion of perfectly white hair. It had all the ideality and much of the ruggedness that characterizes the head of Louis von Beethoven, there was the same deep lines about the mouth and the same stern furrows in the brow. There was the same concentration of expression. While I was yet observing him, the door opened and Jacob brought in the supper. His master then closed his book, rose, and with more courtesy of manner than he had shown me yet, invited me to the table. A dish of ham and eggs, a loaf of brown bread, and a bottle of admirable sherry were placed before me. "'I have but the homeliest farmhouse fare to offer you, sir,' said my entertainer. "'Your appetite, I trust, will make up for the deficiencies in our larder.' I had already fallen upon the viands, and now protested with the enthusiasm of a starving sportsman that I had never eaten anything so delicious. He bowed stiffly, and sat down to his own supper, which consisted primitively of a jug of milk and a basin of porridge. We ate in silence, and when we had done, Jacob removed the tray. I then drew my chair back to the fireside. My host, somewhat to my surprise, did the same, and turning abruptly towards me said, Sir, I have lived here in strict retirement for the three and twenty years. During that time I have not seen as many strange faces, and I have not read a single newspaper. You are the first stranger who has crossed my threshold for more than four years. Will you favor me with a few words of information respecting that our outer world from which I have parted company so long? Pray interrogate me, I replied. I am heartily at your service. He bent his head in acknowledgment, leaned forward with his elbows resting on his knees and his chin supported in the palms of his hands, stared fixedly into the fire and proceeded to question me. His inquiries related chiefly to scientific matters, with the later progress of which, as applied to the practical purposes of life, he was almost wholly unacquainted. No student of science myself, I replied as well as my slight information permitted, but the task was far from easy, and I was much relieved when, passing from interrogation to discussion, he began pouring forth his own conclusions upon the facts which I had been attempting to place before him. He talked, and I listened spellbound. He talked till I believed he almost forgot my presence, and only thought aloud. 
I had never heard anything like it then. I have never heard anything like it since. Familiar with all systems of all philosophies, subtle in analysis, bold in generalization, he poured forth his thoughts in an uninterrupted stream, and still leaning forward in the same moody attitude, with his eyes fixed upon the fire, wandered from topic to topic, from speculation to speculation, like an inspired dreamer. From practical science to mental philosophy, from electricity in the wire to electricity in the nerve, from Watts to Mesmer, from Mesmer to Reichenbach, from Reichenbach to Swedenborg, Spinoza, Condaliac, Descartes, Berkeley, Aristotle, Plato, and the Magi and Mystics of the East, were transitions which, however bewildering in their variety and scope, seemed easy and harmonious upon his lips as sequences in music. By and by, I forgot now by what link of conjecture or illustration he passed on to that field which lies beyond the boundary line of even conjectural philosophy, and reaches no man knows whither. He spoke of the soul, and its aspirations, of the spirit and its powers of second sight, of prophecy, of those phenomena which, under the names of ghosts, specters, and supernatural appearances, have been denied by the skeptics and attested by the credulous of all ages. This world, he said, grows hourly more and more skeptical of all that lies beyond its own narrow radius, and our men of science foster the fatal tendency. They condemn as fable all that resist experiment. They reject as false all that cannot be brought to the test of the laboratory or the dissecting room. Against what superstition have they waged so long and obstinate a war, as against the belief in apparitions? And yet what superstition has maintained its hold upon the minds of men so long and so firmly? Show me any fact in physics and history and archaeology which is supported by testimony so wide and so various, attested by all races of men in all ages and in all climates, by the soberest sages of antiquity, by the rudest savages of today, by the Christians, the pagan, the pantheist, the materialist, this phenomenon is treated as a nursery tale by the philosophers of our century. Circumstantial evidence weighs with them as a feather in the balance. The comparison of causes with effects, however valuable in physical science, is put aside as worthless and unreliable. The evidence of competent witnesses, however, conclusive in a court of justice, counts for nothing. He who pauses before he pronounces is condemned as a trifler. He who believes is a dreamer or a fool. He spoke with bitterness, and having said thus, relapsed for some minutes into silence. Presently, he raised his head from his hands and added, with an altered voice and manner, I, sir, paused, investigated, believed, and was not ashamed to state my convictions to the world. I, too, was branded as a visionary, held up to ridicule by my contemporaries, and hooted from that field of science in which I had labored with honor during all the best years of my life. These things happened just three and twenty years ago. Since then, I have lived as you see me living now, and the world has forgotten me as I have forgotten the world. You have my history. It is a very sad one. I murmured, scarcely knowing what to answer. It is a very common one, he replied. I have only suffered for the truth as many a better and wiser man has suffered before me. He rose, as if desirous of ending the conversation, and went over to the window. It has ceased snowing, he observed, as he dropped the curtain and came back to the fireside. 
Ceased, I exclaimed, starting eagerly to my feet. Oh, if it were only possible, but no, it is hopeless. Even if I could find my way across the moor, I could not walk twenty miles tonight. Walk twenty miles tonight, repeated my host. What are you thinking of? Ah, my wife, I replied impatiently, of my young wife, who does not know that I have lost my way, and who is at this moment breaking her heart with suspense and terror. Where is she? At Dwalding, twenty miles away. At Dwalding, he echoed thoughtfully. Yes, the distance, it is true, is twenty miles, but are you so very anxious to save the next six or eight hours? So very, very anxious that I would give ten guinea at this moment for a guide and a horse. Your wish can be gratified at less costly rate, said he, smiling. The night mail from the north which changes horses at Dwalding passes within five miles of this spot, and will be due at a certain crossroad in about an hour and a quarter. If Jacob were to go with you across the moor and put you into the old coach road, you could find your way, I suppose, to where it joins the new one? Easily, gladly. He smiled again, rang the bell, gave the old servant his directions, and taking a bottle of whiskey and a wine glass from the cupboard, in which he kept his chemicals, said, The snow lies deep, and it will be difficult walking tonight on the moor. A glass of usquaba before you start? I would have declined the spirit, but he pressed it on me, and I drank it. It went down my throat like liquid flame and almost took my breath away. It is strong, he said, but it will help to keep out the cold, and now have no moment to spare. Good night. I thanked him for his hospitality and would have shaken hands, but that he had turned away before I could finish my sentence. In another minute I had traversed the hall. Jacob had locked the outer door behind me, and we were out on the wide, white moor. Although the wind had fallen, it was still bitterly cold. Not a star glimmered in the black vault overhead. Not a sound, save the rapid crunching of the snow beneath our feet, disturbed the heavy stillness of the night. Jacob, not too well pleased with his mission, shambled on before in sullen silence, his lantern in his hand and his shadow at his feet. I followed with my gun over my shoulder, as little inclined for the conversation as himself. My thoughts were full of my late host, his voice yet rang in my ears, his eloquence yet held my imagination captive. I remember to this day, with surprise, how my over-excited brain retained whole sentences, and parts of sentences, troops of brilliant images, and fragments of splendid reasoning, in the very words in which he had uttered them. Musing thus over what I had heard, and striving to recall a lost link here and there, I strode on at the heels of my guide, absorbed and unobservant. Presently, at the end, as it seemed to me, of only a few minutes, he came to a sudden halt and said, "'Yon's your road. Keep the stone fence to your right hand, and you can't fail of the way.' "'This, then, is the old coach road?' "'Aye, tis the old coach road. And how far do I go before I reach the crossroads?' "'Nigh upon three mile.' I pulled out my purse, and he became more communicative. "'The road's a fair road enough,' said he. For foot passengers, but twas over steep and narrow for the northern traffic. You'll mind where the parapet's broken away, close again the signpost it's never been mended since the accident. W what accident? Eh, the night mail pitched right over into the valley below, a good fifty feet and more, just at the worst bit of road in the whole country. 
Horrible, horrible were there many lives lost. All, four were found dead, and two other two died next morning. How long since this happened? Just nine years. Near the signpost, you say. I will bear it in mind. Good night. Good night, sir, and thank ye. Jacob pocketed his half-crown, made a faint pretense of touching his hat, and trudged back by the way he had come. I watched the light of his lantern till it quite disappeared, and then turned to pursue my way alone. This was no longer matter of the slightest difficulty, for despite the dead darkness overhead, the line of stone fence showed distinctly enough against the pale gleam of the snow. How silent it seemed now, with only my footsteps to listen to. How silent and how solitary. A strange, disagreeable sense of loneliness stole over me. I walked faster. I hummed a fragment of a tune. I cast up enormous sums in my head and accumulated them at compound interest. I did my best, in short, to forget the startling speculations to which I had just been listening, and to some extent I succeeded. Meanwhile, the night air seemed to become colder and colder, and though I walked fast, I found it impossible to keep myself warm. My feet were like ice. I lost sensation in my hands and grasped my gun mechanically. I even breathed with difficulty, as though, instead of traversing a quiet north-country highway, I were scaling the uppermost heights of some gigantic alp. This last symptom became presently so distressing that I was forced to stop for a few minutes and lean against the stone fence. As I did so, the chance to look back up the road, and there, to my infinite relief, I saw a distant point of light, like the gleam of an approaching lantern. I at first concluded that Jacob had retraced his steps and followed me, but even at the conjecture presented itself, a second light flashed into sight a light evidently parallel with the first, and approaching at the same rate of motion. It needed no second thought to show me that this must be the carriage, lamps of some private vehicle, though it seems strange that any private vehicle should take a road professed, disused, and dangerous. There could be no doubt, however, of the fact, for the lamps grew larger and brighter every moment, and I even fancied I could already see the dark outline of the carriage between them. It was coming up very fast, and quite noiselessly, the snow being nearly a foot deep under the wheels. And now the body of the vehicle became distinctly visible behind the lamps. It looked strangely lofty, and a sudden suspicion flashed upon me. Was it possible that I had passed the crossroads in the dark without observing the signpost, and could this be the very coach which I had come to meet? No need to ask myself that question a second time, for here it came round the bend of the road guard and driver, one outside passenger and four steaming greys all wrapped in a soft haze of light, though which the lamps blazed out like a pair of fiery meteors. I jumped forward, waving my hat, and shouted. The mail came down at full speed and passed me. For a moment I feared that I had not been seen or heard, but it was only for a moment. The coachman pulled up, the guard muffled to the eyes in capes and comforters, and apparently sound asleep in the rumble neither answered my hail nor made the slightest effort of, to dismount. The outside passenger did not even turn his head. I opened the door for myself and looked in. There were but three travelers inside, so I stepped in, shut the door, slipped into the vacant corner, and congratulated myself on my good fortune. The atmosphere of the coach seemed, if possible, colder than that of the outer air, and was pervaded by a singularly damp and disagreeable smell. I looked round at my fellow passengers. 
They were all three men, and all silent. They did not seem to be asleep, but each leaned back in his corner of the vehicle as if absorbed in his own reflections. I attempted to open a conversation. How intensely cold it is tonight, I said, addressing my opposite neighbor. He lifted his head, looked at me, but made no reply. The winter, I added, seems to have begun in earnest. Although the corner in which he sat was so dim that I could distinguish none of his features very clearly, I saw that his eyes were still turned full upon me, and yet he answered, never a word. At any other time I should have felt and perhaps expressed some annoyance, but at the moment I felt too ill to do either. The icy coldness of the night air had struck a chill to my marrow, and the strange smell inside the coach was affecting me with an intolerable nausea. I shivered from head to foot, and turning to my left-hand neighbor asked if he had any objection to open a window. He neither spoke nor stirred. I repeated the question somewhat more loudly, but with the same result. Then I lost patience and let the sash down. As I did so, the leather strap broke in my hand, and I observed that the glass was covered with a thick coat of mildew, the accumulation, apparently, of years. My attention being thus drawn to the condition of the coach, I examined it more narrowly, and saw by the uncertain light of the outer lamps that it was in the last stages of dilapidation. Every part of it was not only out of repair, but in a condition of decay. The sashes splintered at a touch. The leather fittings were crusted over with mold and literally rotting from the woodwork. The floor was almost breaking away beneath my feet. The whole machine, in short, was foul with damp and had evidently been dragged from some outhouse in which it had been moldering away for years to do another day or two of duty on the road. I turned to the third passenger, whom I had not yet addressed, and hazarded one more remark. This coach, I said, is in deplorable condition. The regular mail is, I suppose, under repair? He moved his head slowly, and looked me in the face without speaking a word. I shall never forget that look while I live. I turned cold at heart under it. I turned cold at heart even now, when I recall it. His eyes glowed with a fiery and natural luster. His face was livid as the face of a corpse. His bloodless lips were drawn back as if the agony of death, and showed the gleaming teeth between. The words that I was about to utter died upon my lips, and a strange horror, a dreadful horror, came upon me. My sight had by this time become used to the gloom of the coach, and I could see with tolerable distinctness. I turned to my opposite neighbor. He, too, was looking at me with the same startling pallor in his face and the same stony glitter in his eyes. I passed my hand across my brow. I turned to the passenger on the seat beside me and saw, Oh, heaven, how shall I describe what I saw? I saw that he was no living man, that none of them were living men, like myself, a pale phosphorescent light. The light of putrefaction played upon their awful faces, upon their hair dank with the dews of the grave, upon their clothes, earth-stained and dropping to pieces upon their hands, which were as the hands of corpses long buried. Only their eyes, their terrible eyes, were living, and those eyes were all turned menacingly upon me. A shriek of terror, a wild, unintelligible cry for help and mercy burst from my lips as I flung myself against the door and strove in vain to open it. 
In that single instant, brief and vivid as a landscape beheld in the flash of summer lightning, I saw the moon shining down through a rift of stormy clouds, the ghastly signpost rearing its warning finger by the wayside, the broken parapet, the plunging horses, the black gulf below. Then the coach reeled like a ship at sea. Then came a mighty crash, a sense of crushing pain, and then darkness. It seemed as if years had gone by when I awoke one morning from a deep sleep and found my wife watching by my bedside. I will pass over the scene that ensued and give you, in half a dozen words, the tale she told me with tears of thanksgiving. I had fallen over a precipice, close against the junction of the old coach road and the new, and had only been saved from certain death by lighting upon a deep snowdrift that accumulated at the foot of the rock beneath. In the snowdrift, I was discovered at daybreak by a couple of shepherds who carried me to the nearest shelter and brought a surgeon to my aid. The surgeon found me in a state of raving delirium, with a broken arm and a compound fracture of the skull. The letters in my pocketbook showed my name and address. My wife was summoned to nurse me, and thanks to youth and a fine constitution I came out of danger at last. The place of my fall, I nearly scarcely say, was precisely that at which a frightful accident had happened to the North Mail nine years before. I never told my wife the fearful events which I have just related to you. I told the surgeon who attended me, but he treated the whole adventure as a mere dream, born of the fever in my brain. We discussed the question over and over again until we found that we could discuss it with temper no longer, and then we dropped it. Others may form what conclusions they please. I know that twenty years ago I was the fourth inside passenger in that phantom coach. That was Amelia B. Edwards' The Phantom Coach, as read by me. Link to my personal page will be in the show notes. That will be our show for the evening, children of the night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show was produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey, and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 license. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.